this is a uh, this has already been an interesting experience. You know, I know of popes and presidents and even mayors that need glass shields, but our drummer. Is this saying anything about him and his performance? I don't know. It's just interesting. No, I teased him up before. But uh, anyway, today we're talking about apologia, or apologia, or apologia, said different ways depending whether you're Steve Kennard or Doug Jacoby or Doug Jacoby. And, and uh, one of those forms of apology is a mea culpa, which we'll be emphasizing a little bit more today. But I thought what we would do is just kind of uh, look at some famous ones uh, that have happened over the last uh, 50, 60 years. On October 30th, 1938, there was a broadcast, a World of the World broadcast, done by uh, Orson Welles. He did not get permission from H.G. Wells, who wrote the story, when he modified it to make it sound like a real-time event that was actually happening, an invasion. And people that didn't tune in with the prologue that described that it was fiction, they people were listening to another channel, thousands of people were listening to another channel when a commercial happened, they switched over to hear Orson Welles describing an actual alien invasion. And they believed it. Many of them did. Thousands of people believed on the East Coast. It created all sorts of hysteria. Later on, he had to apologize for this hoax. The picture at the bottom of the screen shows him and his feigned apology. He has a smirk. Because he's really excited because he went to somebody who was kind of well-known in radio, to somebody who became very famous. This helped skyrocket his uh, fame. And right after his apology, before film, he immediately began bragging about his accomplishment. Robert Schuller was allegedly aggressive towards a male steward on a plane back in the 90s and 97, and he apologized but said he didn't do it, but then decided to have uh, be involved in an informal uh, supervision program. But, you know, the reality is there were a lot of witnesses that saw him do it. Following a 2006 outcry, Pope Benedict, who had he quoted a 12th century source that reflected bad towards Muslims, but he quoted it in an affirming way. And he said, if Muslims were hurt, he was sorry. They were hurt, and he knew it. In 2007, Marion Jones came clean for her use of drugs. As a result, she gave up five gold medals. But her apology, if you were to look it up online, really sets the gold standard for apologies. It was a great, meaningful apology, heartfelt. Fox TV made the statements. American Idol would like to apologize for last week's outrageous behavior by Steven Tyler. Mr. Tyler has been warned and assured us it will never happen again. And it happened again and again. 2012, Rush apologized for calling Sandra Fluke a slut and a prostitute. And he said, my choice of words was not the best. I sincerely apologize to Mrs. Fluke. Mrs. Fluke. Dennis Rodman apologized this last week, a couple of days ago, for his inco- incoherent rants on television while he was in Korea with the basketball team. 
I want to apologize. I have been drinking. I was upset. <laughs> Yesterday he checked into a rehab facility. We have responses like anybody else is subjected to public apology. We immediately go into a mode where we uh, respond and make judgments. Yeah, and uh, bad apologies, you know, they're, they're usually pretty easy to detect. Um, if I hurt somebody, you know, and when I, when I do that, it's like I don't, I don't want to really look at, did I hurt somebody? I want to just right away just say, if I hurt anyone, and I'm not asking any details so I can avoid um, really facing if I hurt somebody. And, um, you know, if, if I say something like, oh, mistakes were made, the problem with the mistakes were made, um, what mistakes? You know, am I, am I really facing the mistake that I, that I, because it's okay to say mistakes were made, but I know, like, just even as a mom, if I say mistakes were made during a, a, a time when my kids were little, during an afternoon, oh, mistakes were made, well, what mistakes were made? You know, we want, we want to talk about it be able, to be able to move forward. And um, I apologize. You know, this is sort of a new um, a way of apologizing. I think, um, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it was I'm sorry, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But I apologize is sort of this formal way of, you know, it could be a, a way that we could just gloss it over. And um, I know in, in our marriage, when um, we first got married, Steve would say, a phrase of, um, what was it again? I stand corrected. I stand corrected. <laughs> and, I, and I would, you know, so if we were having a discussion and we were upset with each other and he saw that he was wrong, he would say, I stand corrected. And I'm like, what's that? That's not an, that's not an apology. And for him, it was the most humble like that in his family was a way of saying, I'm completely wrong. But for me, it was I was like... I don't care if you stand corrected. I, I want you to be sorry. So, um, you know, so I apologize. Sometimes can can take on that. And I am sorry. Um, you know, I, I know that the people I love, they want to hear specifically, specifically what I'm sorry for. And then I love this one. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because it's that thing of like, I don't want to hear any more about what you did wrong. Just, just take my I'm sorry. And um, this, um, this is where I talk about right what happened to me, um, possible responses to an apology. I'm going to tell you guys a little story in a second here um, that happened to me three weeks ago. But, you know, in an apology, when we, when we respond, um, somebody is saying they're sorry, our, it's like really my responsibility, too, to receive it the right way. And... Um, we can over, be overly fixated, sort of like Siskel and Ebert. You know, we could sit in the audience and, well, they should have said it this way, and I don't know. And especially since we have so much on, on film now, you know, that it can, we caught Orson Welles in that moment. We can now say, we don't really think he was sorry. Um, and the acceptance and forgiveness is a, is, isn't that the ultimate, to be able to accept and forgive an apology. And um, the wait-and-see attitude. And, you know, the wait-and-see attitude, it could be good or bad. The wait-and-see, if somebody is waiting after I've apologized to see if I really mean it, maybe it's something I've done over and over again. 
and they are like just waiting to see if I'm serious about it. And then um, negotiating an apology until basically until both sides have figured it out together. And um, I love that because I mean I can think of so many examples in my marriage with that one because you know I'm sorry or Steve's sorry, but it's like but what for? And then we're specific and. You know, we're defending some of our actions maybe in a right way, and we, we work it out until we've come to a point of reconciliation. Um, three weeks ago, I was at the airport in five-degree weather. In a, it was storming, windy, and I was picking up my um, son-in-law, my pregnant daughter, and my grandchild, um, and they had, they're staying at our house right now, so they had, like, five or six big, huge bags of luggage, a stroller, a car seat, um, not very warm clothes since they've lived in Miami. And um, so I was waiting in the cell phone lot, and Jonathan, my son-in-law, called and said, you know, okay, we've got the bags, we're ready. So I'm like, okay, come out, you know, at door E, and I'll pick you up, and I'll, you know, scoop you up. And I had a borrowed van, and... um, crazy holiday time at Midway Airport. So I drive and I spot him. He's easy to spot because he's not dressed very warm. (laughs) And um, I'm driving to go rescue my family and one of the security guards is shouting at me with, you know, one of those like light batons saying, move on, move on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to go get him. And so she's, she's shouting, but not in an angry way, just probably because it's really noisy. So she's just shouting her commands. And so I got a little bit intimidated, and I thought, well, maybe she knows something I don't know, and that's her job. So I just drove right past Jonathan, and he's like, what's going on? And um, so I had to circle all the way around in Chicago traffic and come back. And as I'm going to pull over, and there's all these cars pulling over, the same woman is like, move on, move on, go, go. And I'm like, and then so I, I shouted back at her. And I said, where am I supposed to go? And I just start shouting at her. And she's shouting at me, but, you know, I'm in the car and it's quiet. She's out there with air traffic. And so she's like, go on, go on. And I'm like, how am I supposed to pick up my family? And I am so angry. Like, I, even telling the story, I can sort of feel the, you know, my pulse raising. I'm so angry because I'm trying to, like, rescue my children and grandchild from the cold. And and um, and she goes, oh, where are they? And I go, they're back there. And she goes, well, go get them. And I said, but you told me I couldn't. And so I'm shouting at her. And, and so she goes, well, just go get them. So I literally just stopped the van and... I ask her if she could watch the van. I get out because I'm a person, everything is in there. And I run back with no coat on to go get Jonathan. And he comes and he's bringing all the luggage. And as I get back in the van, it, it, like, it hit me. This woman has probably been there for six hours, eight hours. She's in the freezing cold. She's got all this traffic to manage. I'm just one person. And... I, and she's probably just shouting because it's really loud. And I so showed her my anger. 
So it just, you know how that, that moment happens where you all of a sudden realize that you like, you were so wrong. So I go up to her and I go, hey, excuse me. And she's like, yes. And I go, I am so sorry I shouted at you. I'm so, I was so angry and frustrated. I'm, I'm really sorry. And she goes, oh, you're pretty. <laughs> Of a, of a good apology given and received. If only they could all go so well, right? We're going to dissect this whole area, and I'm going to cover really what this concept can mean, whether it's in the workplace, your family, or the church. Here's the table of contents. We're going to look at a case study with an offender in the Corinthian church that spans both letters that we have in the New Testament. We're going to look at different kinds of offenses or differences that provoke a breakage or cleavage in a relationship. And then consequences of those things as they occur. Then what it means, the word itself means as it appears in history and in the Bible. How we can respond to them and then how to have closure. The case study of the offender at Corinth, this is a situation where his sin, probably a he, I believe it mentions as a he, is has affected the entire community, perhaps even beyond the church itself. And so what we have is a bunch of passages that talks about uh, dissension and division issues that came up. Significant incest. A man has been with his father's wife, perhaps it's a stepmother, but it's kind of been bragged about and it's not been dealt with. Uh, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, and swindling has been part of the history, and Paul is trying to make sure that they're not returning back to who they were. This is a sailor town, by the way, that was known even among the Greeks as being a highly immoral place. Um, people suing their fellow believers, chapter 6, and, and not even having the attitude it'd be better to be wronged. And then cheating others, wrongdoing, that sort of thing. So, my guess is that there's one of three dominant person, uh, situations here that we either have a continual sexual offense, like that incest, that has affected the church and even the community, that their reputation, or a power play that divided the members, or a business deal that brought public reproach. Now, we don't know which one, and I think it's really good that we don't know which one, so that we can learn the concept and not get overly offended about one sin as opposed to another. When a sin in a community is not dealt with and is watched and let go for a while, and then, it, it, you know, like a yeast infects the whole batch, and then beyond the church into the community, serious consequences um, have occurred. So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the church's response and the individual's response. The church's is in chapter 2, verses 5. We're going to read there in a second. And then the, the offender's response is covered in chapter 7. So, 1 Corinthians shows the problems. 2 Corinthians shows how it is navigated and moved through. Now... Read with me. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. 
so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you that was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I will also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now what is going on here is there's a possibility there's even been more letters than the two that we have, but there's certainly relationships, liaisons, between the congregation and Paul, like Titus. And so he's getting became aware of the situation. He writes 1 Corinthians, gets updates, sends his impression of what needs to be done based on the updates that he's received from Titus. So when there has been sin, the community has a responsibility. One of the responsibilities, it says, is you should set up judges who are able to solve basic disputes. You've got competent people in the church, so you should have a mechanism at hand to deal with things right away. You've got wise people. Do it. Figure it out. Don't let things get out of control. But if something really becomes very damaging, then and this person has moved towards repentance, making things right, don't let that person get exasperated by excessive sorrow. Shame can be destructive. And we have to think about the golden rule. If you are that person who's hurt other people in the community, there is a point in time where we need to back off of our anger and say, okay, what can we do here to express the meaningfulness of this offender into our family here? And so that's where Paul is putting it at first for the community. And I'm hoping that we'll think about this in relationship to anything that's happened in this ministry and anything that's happened with you historically so you can evaluate, am I one of those inconsolable people that I mercilessly parse people's apologies and don't make them feel accepted until they've met my high standard that we might not always live up to ourselves? Okay, we don't want to be that. We want to be the heart of what Paul's talking about. So let's talk about some of the offenses and differences that affect us. These are things related to behavior and identity. We can actually get in conflict with somebody just because of who they are. And they may not have said anything. First of all, offense comes from the Greek word scandalon, where we get scandal from. It denotes the idea of somebody who's been tripped over. We have knocked somebody over, and they might have even sinned back in response. Luke 17 and Matthew 18 talks about this. If somebody sins all by themselves out of nowhere, that's one thing. But if they sin in response to something I've done, I have to look at, did I, cause, did I actually cause this problem? Am I the root cause? And so there can be all sorts of damage done from something like this. And by the way... I put up here that a harm is to be distinguished from a hurt. There's all sorts of hurts throughout the Bible that are not dealt with by principles and process and counsels and going through judges. Hey, we we hurt each other all the time. We forget an appointment. uh, We say something a little bit careless. I think it's good to have love go over a multitude of sins, you know, of the lesser things that just is part of our personality, a weakness in us, you know, those minor things that really don't cause harm unless we let it cause harm. Where that line is drawn, I don't know. It's not, it's a subjective thing. But let's delineate something that really didn't harm us 
from something that just slightly perturbed us, you know, or you know something along that scale. So you can have sexual, physical harm. You get emotional harm. That's different than just a little bit of a carelessness. Um, here's the ways that we can scandalize somebody, causing shame, dividing the body, coveting, stealing, deceiving, immorality, damage somebody's reputation, or sabotage their future. These are offenses. Now, differences. They relate to you know where we were born, the family we grew up in, our education, uh, you know, culture, our health, even socializing influences. The way that we look may offend somebody. Culture and practices, things that are embedded in who we are, we're not even aware of it. Beliefs or values that have been inherited over a long haul. Uh, when we become aware of somebody's beliefs about something, you know, if you're a staunch Republican, you find somebody is a left Democrat, that can actually become an identity conflict. It can it can be read into everything. Uh, our associations. Sometimes somebody's not well, maybe even mentally or emotionally, and that can factor into a conflict. And, of course, things that are unchangeable, our gender, our age, our ethnicity, and we, we can be set up. So these things become a root of conflicts many times. We just It's just really good to be aware of them. Why is that person irritating to me? I just don't like them. And so, of course, an interaction can be read through that predisposition of not liking them. We're going to talk next Sunday about a lesson, or in one of the uh, lessons, about the good, bad, and the ugly, about a major breach in church history, that one of the things behind it, a huge thing behind it, was one side didn't like how the other side looked. This is different parts of the church. Culturally, uh, ethnically, geographically, people looked one way from here and one way from there. And so they would insult each other based on these kinds of things. Okay, the consequences of an offense. Okay, the fallout of a poorly managed conflict is usually a combination of a broken relationship, an impeded future... And other kinds of damage that can show up in the body. Now look here. On individually, you can have the offended brother syndrome. The offended brother syndrome is where somebody cannot see any good in the other side, uses absolutes, and until they come through the way that I think they need to come through, I'm not going to accept that. And you can be just that perturbed, inconsolable place. It's actually bad for both parties when somebody has a syndrome. Uh, distancing, kind of staying away, not returning calls as much, giving them a text when they've called, make it sound like you're connected but you're not. Emotional cutoff. Here's an emotional cutoff. We were never really close. That, that's a sign of immaturity and something has happened, perhaps psychologically, to one side of a conflict. Because I have actually seen where that's happened, and it's not absolutely not true. Um, reprisals, you know, things that we might say, gossip or whatever. I call unseen tagging is when we say things about people to other people. It's not quite blatant gossip or slander, but we just say, you know, so and so's kind of this, you know. 
I don't think that person is really fit for that role. You know, you've heard about them, haven't you? You know, there's some things that they did. You heard about where they were in the last ministry they were in, you know? Yeah, you should talk to so-and-so about them. You know? that, that tagging, is like, or tattooing as some people call it, somebody gets branded and they don't even know it. Okay? And so then, as this starts to spread, the people's faith, the individuals involved, from an offense that's not dealt with, their faith, and the faith of people watching this is not getting dealt with. Okay, now, here's another one. I call it leaving the community with Rip Van Winkle syndrome. Okay? Trisha is the one who coined this phrase. Rip Van Winkle syndrome is when somebody is frozen at a certain place in time, and they've locked in an experience and have not moved from it. So, like when we had a ministry where about 70 people left our church through a crisis that happened years ago that we saw it, they left and they froze everything to that particular season and month about how they viewed their previous church, where they had a lot of relationships, a lot of good history. And so we'd run into these people at a paint store or at a shopping mall or a movie theater, and they were right back where they were in the month and the year that they left. And they could only see things we cut through that, even though they didn't stick around to experience, or at least stay connected to experience, the rest of the story. Now here's what happens collectively. When people together are not doing well in a conflict, they can, they're really good at storytelling. They can create myths and rumors that are, sound really compelling and believable. Some version of reality. And they, they, they rely on each other for it, to reinforce it. It becomes very much like a dissension. Or then they can form scapegoating. They've got a target who is to blame for every problem that's ever happened to them. All the big ones. If it wasn't for that one person, it's all on them, you know. And uh, group think is angry. Uh, breakaway splits, guilt traps. And, you know, it's, it's really hard when there's not mechanisms for this. I remember seeing a church split years ago uh, right up front. I wasn't directly involved, tried to get involved. And the, the damage done to people by their own behavior, they didn't know what to do with what they did wrong. There was no, nothing in place, no, no, no safe place to say, help us out, help me out, how do I make this right? And of course, sad outcomes and disintegration of those groups as they break off. Now, apologia, I want you to hear this word and learn something really big today, because this is a game changer concept here. It can't originally meant speaking in defense. So Socrates would defend himself before a tribunal. Paul, the apostle, would defend himself. Okay? But it eventually came to mean giving an answer. And even in the New Testament we see it that way. And in time, unfortunately, it became associated with a regret. But in fact, it's all the above. It's many of these things. Here's my definition, and I had a whole course called Apology, Forgiveness, Reconciliation. I've written some papers on it, and this is my working definition. Apology is an answer to one or more parties in response to a real or perceived offense. Offensive difference, failure, or substandard activities. The answer is usually meant as a bridge of understanding constructed for the purposes of clearing up a matter. It can contain both fixed and negotiable features and the anticipation of a response. 
And we're going to look to see how that happens. Now, look at this scale in parts of an apologia, an apology. You can actually apologize and be innocent. You can be completely innocent and offer something meaningful to the other party who can be hurt. You can be completely guilty. You know, more common, we have both, right? We have been accused of something, charged with an offense, that there are some things said that are absolutely not true, some things that are true, and some important contacts that would shed light on the matter. Now, friends, brothers and sisters here today, the art of figuring out what should first come out of your mouth is truly an art. And it comes through experience and maturity. If I have been accused of something that I am innocent of, largely innocent of, but there is something I do regret, like how I reacted to the whole affair, it could be a mistake to go into the defense. Being defensive is not necessarily wrong. Paul was defensive in some of his letters, even in the Corinthian letters, in the book of Acts. He defends himself right away sometimes. But sometimes a defensiveness is a sense that we're not listening and we're not really offering what's needed at the moment. So, I remember one time I was accused of something that it would have been, I mean, there was just zero traction to it. There was nothing to it. There witnesses and all that. But what I did was I was offended that this person could have done it. So I started... Just getting angry. And then my anger became the focus. Okay? That's not Jesus didn't do that. He would just let it, you know, like fall off his bag, you know, roll, whatever. Miss his target. And so, in order to resolve those things, you go back and say, listen, my reaction was inappropriate. And And for the things that I said in reaction to what happened, I regret them. I would like to say I am sorry for the words that came out of my mouth and the way that they hit you and be very specific about it. Okay, but I really do want to come back and talk about what really did happen. And we might need some help navigating this or negotiating this, but I want you to understand, I did not do what you said at all. And just let it go there maybe. Or, or this is what I did say, or this is what I did do. So you might be looking on the scale here, you might have to do a little bit of everything. Sometimes people are offended because they don't know the context of something. So the most meaningful thing would be to offer context. But the way to do it is to say, hey, listen, I want to hear what you have to say, and I would like to have you hear what I say. Who do you want to go first? That always calms things down, usually does. And if they say, for you, it's your turn to go, whether you're first or second, you say, listen, the first things I'm going to share is I want to put out a context. But I am going to come to the areas where I have some responsibility. But I want to to make sure we have the same story in the backdrop here. So this is challenging. Now, often we are in a conflict with somebody where there are things that have gone both ways. So there might be two apologies in play here. Yours and theirs. And so think about this. Now, and measuring your own apology, think about these six metrics. What is this what is your stance? Are you like this? Are you like like this? 
Does it have integrity where it stands up to reality or witnesses and facts? Is it a fair response? Have you, in your expression, turned something back on somebody else inappropriately? Does it represent responsibility where it fits? I'm responsible for this, and I accept it and the repercussions. Does it bring about healing? Because the goal is to win the other person over, not to win an argument. Is it a game changer? And apologies need to be negotiated sometimes, both for the reasons Tricia mentioned earlier, but sometimes apologies go both ways. So now, let's start to break this down. An apology can be a defense, a justification. Paul said, at my first defense, at my first apologia, no one came to my support. Okay? Or it can be an explanation. When Paul tells the Christians to share their faith, given an explanation is what he means for their faith. May I share my story that you can see where my belief and actions came from? That's really what he means. When you talk to people that you're reaching out to, let them hear where you're coming from and tell the truth from your position. They're on the opposite side of a matter. When a Christian shares with a Muslim who has been from an area that may have been mistreated by people calling themselves Christian, you may need to take some time to say, this is me, this is how I function, this is what I believe, I'm not a violent person, I may be a pacifist or whatever. Let me just tell you my story and how I want to relate to you. You are building apologia between you and that Muslim. That's what Paul is saying, basically. Expression of sympathy. is you have concern for the other person. And I'm sorry that you went through that ordeal. Okay? This, knowing that you care about how they feel, is a bridge-building thing. And so they might start to realize, well, you didn't actually cause it. Okay, now, for instance, what about dentists in the days before Novocaine and pain relief, okay? They cause us pain, those dentists. Fortunately, none of us are old enough where that was the case. But it has gotten better over our lifetime, hasn't it? Some of us that are in our 50s and older. But there was a time where just dentists caused pain. They get those pliers and they rip that tooth out. Okay? And all the alcohol in the world is not going to make that thing feel good. So, did the dentist cause pain? Yes. Is he sorry for it? No. He's not sorry for what he did. He's sorry that the person happened to experience that pain. Okay? An expression out of restoring social harmony. It's a concern for the relationship and the balance in the community. I regret that my actions hurt you. And I hope that we can recover our relationship. This is one of the best things to start out with when you have tried to negotiate responsibilities and blame and all this and you're not really sure what you did wrong or whatever but and you have to work it out start out with hey i realize that what i said to you hurt you i hope that we can piece this back together because you're you mean a lot to me i just look forward to us together being beyond this But the one that we're most familiar about with is the mea culpa. Through my own fault. Literally, my bad. It contains remorse, implying regret, responsibility, restitution, repentance, all this stuff, and an appeal for forgiveness. That's implied. I was wrong, and I now see that my actions were harmful and excusable, and I want to right my wrongs. Will you please forgive me? Not Not a forgive me. 
I hope that you could forgive me someday. That sort of thing. So it's not an expectation. So anyway, this is what we're focusing on right now. And a really bottom line is, if you look at a list on the website somewhere, anywhere on the internet, it says, this is what a mea culpa is. Expressing regret, accepting responsibility, making restitution, genuine repentance, and requesting forgiveness. Now let's look back at the offender in Corinth and let's see how he did. Okay, because this was big what he did. He damaged the church, people in the church. He probably damaged the reputation of the church in the community. He did wrong and everybody knew it. They were all, eyes were on the offender. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow, Paul says, brings repentance. That leads to salvation and leaves no one regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, and what readiness to see justice done. And at every point you prove yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, if you take the larger context of this chapter, and we don't have time to do that today, you get the impression that this is for the church in the situation, with zeroing in on an offender as well. There are two things going on. Because the church has let this go on. So they have to repent too. They have to clear up the matter. They have to be a different kind of church so this stuff doesn't happen again. People have to investigate, but the offender has to make it right. Now guess what? The Greek word, apologia, is in this text. And all the Bible translations differ when it gets to this word. It's as if they don't know what to do with it right there. And it says, this, what eagerness to clear yourselves? The word behind that is where we get apology from. But most of the time in the ancient world, it's used as a defense. So the guilty perp is making a defense. Or the guilty perp is making an offering an explanation. Or the guilty perp is saying, my bad. See, I think it's all the above. Because if you take time and do this on your own, look at the passage. I think what's happening is this person has increased their resolve. Their resolve. They've increased their longing. They've had to work at this matter over and over again. And they became a place in time where they got it ready. They got it all figured out. And they go to the assembly and they say, Listen to me. I am willing to do whatever to clear up what I have done. I'll go to the people outside the church and tell them how how I messed up. I'll accept responsibility and yada, yada, yada. And so I'll do whatever. And so that person is now living a defensible life. And they are now innocent. So a perp becomes innocent. A perp can now defend himself. The offender can stand before the community and not have the shame hanging over them anymore. This is really important because Christian, Christians, what we do is we put tags on people that stay. Long term. Christians are really the worst sometimes about forgiveness. A few months back I did a lesson on Aaron and I asked, how do we remember Aaron from the Old Testament? Oh, the golden calf incident, right? 
One really bad, really major failure in his life. He had a lot of successes. But the psalmists and the later writers, when they talk about Aaron, they don't mention the golden calf incident. I think it would be good for us to erase things that have been fully rectified. And that's what's happened here in this story. The community has to get its act together and respond to an offense and deal with processes and make sure it's a good healing place. A person has got to make it right to the community by explaining and turning themselves in and then the community needs to view them as innocent. Now, there have been some things that have happened in this ministry in the past year or so. And there have been sides of this story. I know, Steve, are you really going to go there? Are you going to talk about it? Of course, that's what I'm here for, right? <laughs> that's what you're paying me for. Okay? I, I, there were true wrongs that precipitated all that happened last spring. Mistakes or blunders or offenses, whatever we want to call them. And then the reaction to those became another matter altogether. And unless somebody is enormously, amazingly temperate and righteous, that's usually not me, by the way. Not amazingly. Okay? And certainly not over time. And unfortunately, we do not have the mechanisms in place to respond to the predicament that happened last February, March. Then people get exacerbated and then start to act out in ways that they shouldn't have. And that happened with some people that are still here today in the auditorium and people that left. And that would be words that what came out of your mouth, individuals, that have left a sting on somebody. And they don't know what to do with it except for try to forgive it. There have been careless things done in social media, Twitter, emails, anonymous letters. Unacceptable for our future. We cannot allow these things to happen. Blind copy put a lot of people out on a feeling that we have. It should be very transformed, very process oriented. And then people meeting and you know, and groups have no formal reason to meet together other than to reinforce their anger. And there's just been some things that were just not right in response to a wrong. Okay, so the goal here is to, for you to trust us to be impartial, to identify all that went wrong, even if it went up further than besides the west side. Okay, that's what our goal is here. I was telling Catherine Shump the other night, I don't have the ability to, to please people when it comes to this kind of work. Like, I can't say two and two is five so that you'll like me more. I can't. I was an engineer. I know what two and two is, okay? So my conclusions are going to be really, really well thought out, vetted from a discovery process, and I'm going to put it out like I can in a merciful way, okay? But but it's not just the leaders that hurt the situation here on the west side. There has been reactivity that hurt the situation on the west side. And what we want to do is create the process to clean up the things that we should not have said or done or acted out or withhold our contribution or not go to a meeting or something like that. And you know what? I live by everything I tell you. I can, I can give you phone numbers and email addresses of people that I've been in conflict with and they'll tell you I'm the first to apologize. 
I want to be that person. I remember going into a meeting where I was vindicated by a process, by mediators and all this, completely cleared up in a situation. I opened the meeting with an apology. Because my reactivity to being wronged actually made it harder to clear it up sooner. Okay? And it was a game changer moment. And then all of a sudden there was a flood of apologies going around this circle. We have got to be good at this, brothers and sisters. Do you agree with me on that? Let's get really, really good at this. I think it's going to help us succeed in all walks of our life. Okay. Now, responses. Trish is going to come up here in a second. Apology prompts attentive listening that may result in a new perspective. Forgiveness. Return apologia or further negotiation. Or it might even be rejection. Somebody might not accept your response. But we're going to have it. At this time, Trish is going to share. I love this subject because I grew up um, never knowing if I was forgiven and definitely accruing a lot of situations that I didn't give forgiveness. And in my extended family, um, we had a lot of feuds. So I, um, I never met an uncle that lived in Illinois that we lived not too far from. I always thought... You know, if I saw somebody that looked like our family, maybe that's my cousin. Because there was just a, um, a severed relationship. And, um, and, and really on both sides of my parents' families, there was, there was that in, just in our families where there was somebody wronged somebody, there was, there would, they would never speak again. And my dad is 86, and uh, maybe someday we'll listen to this lesson, I don't know, but, you know, he's, um, he looks back at his life and, you know, wishes that he would have pushed through and, you know, made this certain person talk to him and, or just done everything possible instead of just letting it happen. And so when I, I was super attracted to Christianity when I found out that there was forgiveness for sure available for me. Because I had started really building up a lot of things that I knew deep in my heart I needed forgiveness for. Not only from other people, but especially from God. And I think about this scripture. It says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And um, so I, I, I remember studying the Bible, and I remember the expectation being given to me that if you want forgiveness from God, you are going to have to forgive that same way. And um, so the things that, you know, there's four kinds of really of different forgiveness, ways to forgive. And the first one would be, you know, and they're all, forgiveness is all letting go, as you can see in your notes. And uh, the first one, though, it's just for me. And I'm going to forgive because it's right for me, spiritually, physically. I mean, I've gotten sick physically when I've had a hard time forgiving. I, I don't know if that's ever happened to any of you, but um, that, that just, you know, we can just really get stuck physically it's, as well as spiritually. And sometimes just forgiving is um, letting go for the better of us, you know, like just another relationship. And, you know, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to forgive because I want us to be close. And um, sometimes it's for the community. Maybe something was wrong. We were wronged, but we were sort of a, 
an outsider. You know, I've been in those situations where I go, whoa, that wasn't right. (laughs) I can see that for sure. But I so want the community to work out that I, I'm just willing to, to let it go. I mean, that happens actually on a regular basis in our condominium in Chicago. We have, a, we have a condominium of 18 apartments. We're self-managed, and some of our meetings are crazy. I mean, where you've got, like this one time, this, this older man, he's in his 70s, who I'm going to show great respect to, is literally lunging over somebody's dining room table just yelling at me and calling me names and swearing at me. And I was like, so, is anybody going to come to my defense? <laughs> but, you know, I, he never said he was sorry, but we, we moved on because I, I really want our condo group to work out. So it's one of those things that you're going to do it because you want the community to work out. And, um, and then the most important is because of God. And I think about the Joseph story and um, just how he... Um, Joseph was, he was privileged to be able to see how his life really, all the wrongs that were done to him really was a God story. And God had it planned all along. And, you know, maybe I'm not going to be privileged to always know everything that happens to me and the God part of it. But because of the scriptures, I completely trust that things happen and there is meaning behind it. And um, sometimes when we're hurt, I can feel like this means nothing. And God, do you even see it? But over and over and over again in my life, I've learned um, that God does have a story. He's taught me that. And so as I go forward in the future, maybe things that happen to me aren't going to make sense. But because of what has happened scripturally and in my life that has made sense, I totally trust that God has a story behind that has meaning. Amen. Thank you, honey. Okay, we're coming to a close here, but this is, we're not done. We're just getting closer to be there. Okay, please hang on. I know it's a little bit longer than normal. We're going to talk about closure. There's different kinds of closure, closures. Memory is a big part of how we get closure. Okay, think about the current state of any infraction you've had. Okay? Sometimes we have to acknowledge that a relationship is over. That is a form of closure. Maybe uh, that person doesn't even share the same Christian beliefs anymore and they become very violent or antagonist. You can have closure on that relationship and say, it's not going to ever be there and I have to accept it. That's reality. You can have a sense of closure. If you have a broken relationship, there's actually in a process. Anything that happened in the past couple of years here is in a process as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so we, we, we can think that, hey, we're going to have closure. It's going to be there. We're moving in that direction. I'm staying in contact, and that's my goal throughout this three months, with everybody that had anything to do with our story here because we want to, we want to get to a sweet spot. Uh, forgiveness is a form of closure. You don't even need the other person to respond so perfectly to choose forgiveness if you're capable of doing that. Uh, sometimes we can reach a level of forgiveness. And by the way, these are getting better and better and better as we come down the list. Forgiveness, and the matter is actually resolved... And trust is being rebuilt. That's even better closure. Reconciled relationship. Okay, but things are different. Like, not all circumstances do you want to go back to where it was when the problem occurred. Okay? Sometimes the circumstance itself is what provoke problems. So you change the circumstance. But the reconciliation can still be full. It can still be great. Okay? Or it can even be fuller when all is good as if nothing ever happened. 
like I have a relationship with a, a friend in Chicago that we, I've had like for since 1986. We had a horrible moment just once in there. We're as good as we ever were. Just it didn't even happen. Okay, it's like it didn't even happen. And so that's good. Okay, but there's even one better than that. Better than that. Okay, and that is, it was good that you had the conflict. Even though I had carnage, even though it was painful, even though it hurt some people. Because we were able to transform more because of it than what we would have transformed if it didn't happen. I personally believe what has happened in our community can be that outcome in many situations. It is really a choice to say, I'm going to leverage my pain for the best version of me and making sure we become the best together. July of this year, this congregation will be 25 years old. That means this ministry will be 25 years old. 56 people started this church back in 1989. And this was home base. This was ground zero for an awesome future. Imagine all the ministers who's ever led in the West Side coming back this July. I know it's probably too late to make it happen. Okay, so maybe we're talking 2019, okay? But let's say it's this July. Okay, Marty Fuquay is here. Marty and Chris Fuquay are here, okay? And a lot of other vintage people from the past whose names I'm not as familiar with. But even Ron LaVanya Drabo and Kurt and Patty Simmons and, and the Maruskis and all the people that... And of course the Bairds are still here and, and uh, the Ketterings are here and the, the Galangs are here and the Basharas are here and all the names, everybody... How are we going to be in that July meeting celebrating 25 years? Let's do what we can now for the very best possible meeting celebrating the history of the Los Angeles church in the West Side. Do you agree with that? Okay, now think about you right now. What can you do right away to do your part to make sure that happens? Okay, and then lastly, anything you've got unresolved, look at that list. Do you have any animosity towards somebody moving from harm to wishing well? Okay, do you have any reparations that you're expecting of somebody? Just wave them if you can. If you can, if you can't, go have a talk with them. But move towards wanting to wave them. If they hurt your reputation or something, move towards wanting to wave them. Is your relationship, I never want to see you again? We'll move it to, hey, I want to be vulnerable again. I want to give it a, another shot. Okay? Look at your current relationships that way. And, and look at what we've covered today. We covered a case study where somebody was able to clear themselves after doing a really awful thing. We looked at offenses and differences and their consequences, how to form and present a best bridge-building response. And we talked about how to get closure. I love this passage. It says in verse 16 of Romans 12, Live in harmony with one another. Amen. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Well, actually, listen here, my final words. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Thank you.